I have Spotify in front of me, and I'm going to tell you some of the people that I'm that is on my current playlist. Excellent. I want to hear this. Uh, okay, and this is just a, a random group here. Matt Duncan. Okay. Um, Lawrence is very good. St. Paul and the Broken Bones. They are from Birmingham. Okay. Uh, Houndmouth. Kurt Vile. Pretty Pimpin'. That's like my new theme song. <laughs> Pretty Pimpin'. Uh. Kurt Vile, V-I-L-E? That's, V-I-L-E. That's got to be the name of the podcast. You have to listen to this song, Pretty Pimpin', because it's, you know, it's the medical educator (laughs) song. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast. The podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm your host, Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Tony... Paul and Stuart. Hi, guys. Yeah, hi. <laughs> if you don't want to talk to me, I understand. What's up? We, we were fighting before we came on air. I thought we had worked it out, but I guess not. Yeah, I'm busy pretty pimping. <laughs> what up, G? Uh, we are broadcasting live from Dr. Waddle's bedroom. That is uh, unfortunately true. Um, so... Uh, we're back with the curbsiders, as I was saying, uh, before I was rudely interrupted or ignored. You were not interrupted at all. As I was ignored by you guys. Ignored. Um, okay. So our guest tonight is Dr. Robert Centaur. He is a dean at Huntsville Regional Medical Center and professor of medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's actually the, uh, a former president of the Society for General Internal Medicine, as well as the Society for Medical Decision Making and uh, a couple other societies. He is also, if you've heard of them or used them, the author of the Centaur Criteria for uh, Acute Pharyngitis, if I can speak. He can't. (laughs) Thank you. And uh, so we had him on to talk about uh, what medical decision-making and pharyngitis. This discussion, uh, we spend the majority of the time actually talking about teaching, uh, learning, and medical decision-making, and the end of- And Dr. Wada's inability to recognize Lemire syndrome. That is true. Uh, the end of the show, we did speak about pharyngitis, and there may be some knowledge gaps there, which I am not, not proud of. Uh, He's proud of it. Doesn't Paul have a lot of cats? Uh, Paul? Yeah, so it's, it's called Lemire syndrome. Um, it's also known as septic thrombophobitis, the internal jugular vein. No. It's, you can read all about it. What, what does that have to do with your cats? No, no, I was asking how many cats no, you no, have. No, no, I feel... No, no, that was my question. <laughs> I, I hey, yeah, Paul, how many this. cats do you have? <laughs> okay. I, uh, I, I will look on Wikipedia, <laughs> and I'll get back to you. I will, I'm going to edit the Wikipedia page real quick. <laughs> uh, before the next show, I'll be giving you guys a two-minute talk on Lemire syndrome, and I apologize in advance for not knowing what it was. Uh, Tony, you have anything you want to say? He's, He's uh, sawing some wood back there. Fibro. What? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and uh, is there anything else you want to add? No, uh, please enjoy the show. It's a tough pill to swallow. Well, uh, it's a big pill to swallow. I mean, it's a good pill to swallow. Just swallow it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Just wanted to let you all know, after the interview with Dr. Centaur, we decided it was too long to release as a single episode, so we split it up into part one, focusing on medical education, followed by part two, where we talk about pharyngitis, the origin of the Centaur criteria, 
and I get made fun of pretty bad. I hope you enjoy. So we have with us tonight, Dr. Centaur. Hi, Dr. Centaur. Good afternoon. So uh, I guess we should we should uh, say who we are so people can try to differentiate our voices. This is Matt Stewart. And somebody this is else. Tony. Oh, that's Tony. Straight from the bathroom. Hi, Tony <laughs> from the bathroom. And then Paul's there somewhere in the background. We don't, we don't know where. Paul? Somewhere back there. This is there Paul you go, Paul. Hi, Paul. Um, and this is Stuart Brigham, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Paul records from an animal shelter in Philadelphia. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, Dr. Centaur, so now that we're done uh, introducing ourselves, um, <laughs> so my, uh, my first question for you, when, when someone asks you uh, what you do, how do you answer that question if you're at a dinner party or some other fancy occasion like Chuck E. Cheese for a birthday or something? Uh, that, that, that actually is a great question because it's a very hard question to answer. Um, I do tell them that I teach internal medicine, and then I try to explain what that means. And it is so not obvious to people who aren't in medicine how you teach. They say, what kind of lectures do you give, and, and what class do you teach? And I said, well, it's not exactly like that. And then I tried to explain it. Uh, I've also – I'm finishing, uh, as of this January, 12 and a half years as dean of a regional medical campus in Huntsville. They sort of understand what a dean – job is so that's what i tell them and i do a little research on the side and then if you don't like the person and you want to blow them off you just say what i, I teach med- <laughs> i teach medicine okay at the bedside oh so you actually know how to do physical exams i've been meaning to learn that yeah the occasionally they really help and not as much as taking a good history but they right. help well you, you actually have a a blog post where you uh, actually state that you'd rather teach outside of the of the, the patient's room first before you go to bedside. Is That's that, correct. Okay. Can, can you expand on that? What do you mean by that? So um, some people call them table rounds. Some people call them sit-down rounds. Um, I've been doing this since I was a resident. And what what we do is we go through all the patients, discuss what's going on, that's the time I can ask the students and the residents questions, put them on the spot, try to be nice about it, but make sure that we're all on the same page. We have a good idea what's going on. We know what the labs are. We've looked at the x-rays. We've thought about everything. They've told me what they want to do. And then we go to the bedside. Some patients just require reassurance. Other people, especially new patients, uh, when I go to the bedside, I've already heard the story, and then I retake the history with that background, and I and I retake uh, the uh, redo the physical exam, uh, and that um, allows allows us to focus on the patient when we're in the room and not on the t- on the teaching. Okay. We demonstrate physical findings. We discuss the history process. We discuss bedside manner when we go back out in the hall. But we're never questioning the res the residents or the students in front of the patient. I see because it made me uncomfortable when I was a resident, and I never forgot that. So, yeah, Doctor Center, you you'd mentioned that you actually find the HPI actually more helpful than the physical exam, oftentimes. And I actually I, I loved your blog post about teaching the HPI above and beyond sort of role modeling that because it seems to be becoming a lost art. Like how how do you emphasize that when you're teaching your residents, and sort of what methods do you use to actually get them to take a better history of present illness? Yeah, so um, 
there's a guy at, at University of California, San Francisco, Brad Sharp, who I heard give a great talk on how to get students and residents to present the HPI. So one of the things I do is I teach people that the first paragraph is the story and the second paragraph is all the stuff that your attending is going to ask you and you answer those things because it shows you've thought through the case. And I actually am an interrupter and I apologize to everybody at the beginning of the rotation that I'm going to interrupt them and if they haven't really done the first paragraph right, they haven't answered the questions the way that they should have, we actually dissect it, give them feedback so the next time they'll do a better job. I don't wait till the very end, but at the end of the HPI, we should have a good idea and we should have all the information included there. So I'm, I'm really very compulsive about teaching them what belongs there and what what they left out so they'll do a better job the next time. And it's amazing by giving people feedback like that, they do a better job. <laughs> right. And it sounds like you give them a chance to amend their own HPI, so, which is, which is great. Exactly. Stuart, did you have, did you have an add on question? Well, yeah. So I, I was just going to ask about, um, so, so you give review or not review. So you, you, you give feedback on the fly as they're presenting. That's correct. Uh, as a matter of fact, I sat down with my team today and I was giving them uh, uh, mid-rotation feedback. Okay. And several several of them appreciate the fact that when they present, they get immediate feedback on what they're doing well and what they could be doing better. Okay. And they say it's so much better than uh, – this is sort of like an, an, an educational theory, the difference between formative testing and summative testing – this is formative feedback rather than summative feedback. Okay. Right. So if, in case the listeners don't understand, formative is you're giving feedback as you're going along to try to help people improve and reevaluating them each time as opposed to at the end of the rotation saying, you know, your presentations really weren't that good and right. this is why. So that do, doesn't help anybody grow. Do you think that that's one of the most common mistakes that's made by medical educators? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what the, that's what students tell me. Okay. Is that is they're not getting uh, they're not getting feedback at the time they need to get feedback. So what what do you do with the student or resident who doesn't want feedback? How, how do you respond to uh, that? So let's say let's say they respond poorly to feedback, or, or yeah. maybe like resist to feedback. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's because of my reputation. And maybe because it's of my stature, but I never run into that problem. But <laughs> <laughs> weed them out first. I really don't run into that problem. Now, I smile when I give them feedback. And so a lot of times, like the intern today said, you know, that was a good job, but how are we going to make it a better job? Hmm. So I try not to be um, punitive at all in the feedback. Okay. Uh, I, what I try to do is say, okay, we're go- we're, this, is, this is like deliberate practice and we're going to make you better each step of the way. Okay. So you offer right. them the opportunity to identify for themselves what they can improve on before you open up the uh, floodgates, per right. se. Okay. Right. Well, I was going to say, I've personally found that it's, it's always, if you give them that option, like, hey, uh, how do you think you're doing? And they're like, my presentations are terrible. It kind of takes it off you being the bad guy when you tell them that their presentations are terrible. So uh, right. that is a good tip. Yeah. <laughs> and, and oftentimes it seems as though the uh, student or the or the resident, they, they tend to overemphasize their mistakes and not 
not tend to highlight their their successes. So what, what kinds of uh, advice would you give to medical educators to help help our students or residents to identify where they have succeeded? Uh, students and residents uh, are uh, fragile human beings and they need a lot of positive feedback. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, many of us in medicine uh, are not good at giving positive feedback. We don't know how to praise people in a way that's believable. Um, so, for example, if I give them inst- an instruction on how to better do the HPI, and then the next time they do HPI and they've done a better job, I make a big deal out of the fact that they did a better job. Mm-hmm. Um, they included some. They included things, and I point out exactly what they included. So the feedback is not always negative. Sometimes it's very positive. When they include something that really makes me smile, I tell them it really makes me smile. <laughs> right. And then it also helps the other people on the team as well. I mean, if that's in front of, is that in front of Absol- the whole team? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The whole, the whole team's yeah. together when we're, when we're doing these presentations. So then they get to see like, you know, Hey, I should include that. And, you know, exactly. so essentially exactly- seek the same kind of Praise, etc. So do you cool. do you also give constructive feedback? I, I I guess another word for it would be negative feedback in front of the uh, other residents and students, or do you wait to talk yeah. to them on one on one? Um, no, we, we we frankly talk about how to make it a better presentation. So okay. it's con- it really is constructive. It's not negative. I said, it sounds like you did a good job here, but you're not telling the story as well as you could have. This is about storytelling, and mm-hmm. we need to get you to learn how to tell the story so that I better understand it and the resident better understands it. Okay. So I, I, it's all I like how you frame it. <laughs> well, that was interesting. That was very are you, that are was you very be, is someone being arrested? Paul, was that you? Uh, or, uh, oh, Phil, oh, it sounded like uh, Blade Runner or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, just, that's just the usual. Wait till the train goes by. <laughs> no, it's, it sounds like... You know, it's and I think where we fall down in feedback often is just in lack of specificity, both positive and, and negative. Mm-hmm. So it's I think the most useless phrase in the world in feedback is, you know, you should read more. Like, I, I think what you're saying about actually in front of the group, picking out specific things for them to improve one of the specific things they did well is far more helpful than sort of broad. Eh, you could have done better. Now you did good. Uh, sir, I was going to ask you <laughs> when you do rounds this way, where you talk about all the patients, then you go back to the bedside and do the physical exam with the team there. Are you doing that for every patient? Because if you have 20 patients, you're talking about a lot of time invested there. Yeah, for fortunately, I almost never have 20 patients. Uh, but <laughs> the most I've rounded on in the last 10 years is 16. Okay. Um, but a lot of the patients are old patients, and I don't have to do a complete physical uh, mm-hmm. on old patients. And actually, very few patients require a complete physical Um I do tar- I did do targeted physical exam. Um, I, do, I mostly do I do spend more time doing histories and discussing with the patient uh, what their disease is, what our plans are, what what the plan is for the day. Um, but if a patient has a heart murmur, we listen to the heart murmur, make sure everybody listens to it. I try to get the patient to be part of the process and say, listen, I need you to help me teach all these doctors so that when they hear this heart murmur again, they'll know what it is. Right. Patients seem to like that when you, when you phrase it that way. Right. Uh, so 
the time at the bedside is efficient. If I feel like I need to do a complete physical exam on a patient, I don't, I'm not taking the whole team in there. If we're going to listen to the lungs and see what we hear and feel for accessory muscle use, listen to the heart, uh, listen to the abdomen, see if there's any bowel sounds, see if we can feel any masses, uh, then we do that. But I'm not looking in everybody's eyes. I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing a complete physical. I'm loving talking about the medical education. I think we might have one or two more questions on this topic, and I wanted to sort of uh, switch gears a little bit here. Paul, do you have any more questions on uh, medical education? And Yeah, I just – well, I, I guess the one that comes to mind is I know, um, Dr. Center, you've actually written about qualities of a successful educator. And I, I just – I wondered sort of what resources are available for faculty development or sort of how we as medical educators can sort of work to, to better ourselves independently. I guess how, how can we make ourselves – you know, just in a couple sentences, how can we make ourselves better medical educators? I actually took a course about 10 years into to, uh, my career, took a course in medical education. I've been to a lot of workshops uh, for internal medicine, Society of General Internal Medicine, and uh, the uh, Society for Hospital Medicine both have a lot of good courses. We send a lot of junior faculty now to the Academic Hospitalist Academy. Uh, which is co-sponsored by SGM and SHM, and that's a very good place to pick up some skills. Uh, finishing your residency, even if you're a really good teacher, uh, and I thought I was a really good teacher when I finished my residency, but I wasn't. I didn't understand what I was doing, and I had to do it for a while, and then go take some coursework to reflect on how to become better. And I think another, right. I've heard some other, uh, I've, I've taken the Stanford faculty development, uh, mm-hmm. not the master course, but just the, uh, mm-hmm. I've had, I, I've gone to that. It's an eight week course. That was pretty good. And I've heard that Duke has a good one as well, uh, for medical educators. Do you know of those ones, Dr. Centaur? Uh, I actually spent a month at Stanford. Okay. okay. So you, in 1990, so you're one of the master yeah. educators there. I, 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 I suspected uh, Ke- 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 Kelly Skiff is one of my heroes. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah, those are, I can say that that was a very, um, I learned that I was doing a lot of things poorly. Uh, and fortunately I went to that relatively early in my career. Um, no, no comment, Stuart, about me doing things poorly. Thank you. That's okay. <laughs> I, I won't comment on your poorness. Okay. Uh, anyways, so in, in preparing to talk to you, I, I read a bunch of your, your blog posts and one of your blog posts, you specifically discuss the aspect of servant leadership in an attending physician. I just wanted to get your opinion on, on what exactly that entails for our listeners and, and how that, uh, how, how that looks in it, in an, an attending, if I can speak without stuttering. Yeah. So, um, it's really important to understand what your job is. And uh, I fear that some people who are attending physicians, and I think I've observed this, think that it's all about them. And it's not. It's all about the patient, and it's all about the learners. Um, one of the things I remind myself all the time, and it's, it's almost become uh, a joke, is I ask the students, did they get their money's worth today? Because they're paying a lot of money to go to school. <laughs> That's so good. That's I have an point, obligation yeah. to them to help them grow. I have an obligation to the residents to help them grow, to make sure they're learning and becoming better physicians. And I have an obligation to the patients to try to make sure they have the best possible care. And so the servant leadership is I'm serving those people. Now, I'm in a great position because um, 
everybody listens to me. Uh, <laughs> everybody's interested in what I have to say. Uh, but I try to do it in a way that it's really not about me. It's really about helping uh, each person at each level get to the next level uh, and develop and make sure that our patients are treated with appropriate respect. These, these, um, this kind of philosophy that you've developed, the servant leadership and, and some of the other things that you're saying, I noticed in some of your blog posts, you're quoting Stephen Covey. And even though his book, uh, sounds incredibly hacky by the title, the seven habits of uh, highly effective mm-hmm. people, I think it does have a lot of practical wisdom. And are there, is that book or other books like that, that you can recommend to us or the listeners since Stuart called me out on not asking for book recommendations <laughs> on prior uh, okay, podcasts. Well, <laughs> so, so I think that that's a, uh, I think that's a good book. Uh, there's another one by Chip and Dan Heath called made to stick. Okay. Uh, which, and I, it, it has two, two big ideas. One is, uh, how to make an idea sticky so that people will remember it. But the other thing it talks about is the curse of knowledge. And so, have any of you heard about the curse of knowledge? After I read your uh, blog post, I looked it yeah, up. After you read my blog post. That's right. Yes. So the curse of knowledge is where most uh, medical teachers fall down. And that is they know something so well that they can't go back and explain how, how you get there. So once you've learned it, once you own it, you can't remember not owning it. And you forget all the all the steps you had to go through in order to have that understanding. What we don't do a good job of is keeping it basic. Uh, we tend to try to teach, especially when we start, we try to teach esoteria and wide, wide, uh, incredible differential diagnoses, and we don't teach people, okay, how do we really interpret that bicarbonate or wh- what do we mean by estimated GFR? And we we get too quickly to the esoteric stuff, and we skip over the basics. And unfortunately, um, we all know that after the first years of medical school, you know a good vocabulary, you know a mm-hmm. few basics, but you've forgotten most of what you learned because, as they say, the first years of medical school are wasted on first and second year medical students. <laughs> <laughs> Intuition. <laughs> Intuition, yeah. Good good answer there. And actually, that was a couple of questions that I had in the uh, script here. Um, so Stuart, a, Stuart was stalking your blog, if you can't a, tell. Absolutely. I, I read <laughs> the last year's worth of blog posts. That, that reminds me of my question. If you, uh, I just wanted to know. You had a question? Yeah. How did you, so you, you seem to write very, um, your writing seems to be, it's concise, but they're very. You're pro. You're writing three or four posts. It seems a month, probably more. I'm, I might be shortchanging you there, and uh, I've tried to do that, and I end up being too afraid to post them or just not having the time. Because your writing it. sucks. <laughs> exactly. So how do I get there? Well, if you go back to 2002 when I started blogging and read some of the lousy posts that I had back then, writing is like anything else. You just have to keep practicing it. And be honest with yourself about whether you've done a good job or not. And just keep refining it by doing more writing and reading about writing. But I actually started blogging because I had writer because I had writer's block. That was the reason I started blogging. I was having a hard time writing articles. 
and I need I knew I needed to get better at the writing process. Um, and it's just a lot of practice. In 2002, I, I don't even know if I knew what a blog was back then. So you were you were in it. You've been in it for a long time. It's pretty early. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm an admitted nerd. <laughs> well, I, I, this, this is internal medicine, sir. So, I mean, you're, you are very welcome on this show. <laughs> I did have a guest book on my GeoCities account at that time. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I do think that uh, if our listeners have not checked it out, medrants.com, and, uh, and I'm not just saying this, I mean, there's, I, I did read a fair number of posts in preparation for this as well. And I mean, that it's very good stuff. Uh, definitely, it seems like you have your ear to the ground. What are you reading to get the ideas for these blog posts? Uh, what should, what do you recommend that your, our young faculty out there, or, or any faculty rather, should be reading? I read the New York Times uh, health section. That gives me a lot of ideas. I talk to people. Uh, it's amazing how often a blog post is stimulated by a conversation I have with a friend who has nothing to do with medicine. In fact, I just posted the last post I did was about are statins worthwhile? Yeah, I saw that. Um, and so I'm playing golf with one of my buddies, and he asks me, Should I be taking this statin because I think my muscles have gotten weaker? And there had just been uh, a major article about the controversy over statins and a, and a back and forth between the British Medical Journal and The Lancet and how the there's one group that thinks that everybody should take a statin regardless and uh, then the rest of us who think that it's really good for secondary prevention, primary prevention. So I'd read this article and it was in the back of my mind and then I had this conversation. I said, that's a story, and now we can tell a story. Right. Do you think that it's uh, a mistake to allow direct marketing to our patients then? for So in, the, in this case, you could have this pharmaceutical company that, that can tout the, the sprint trial and then directly market to our patients who then come to us and say, hey, you know, I heard about this on the news. I heard about this on, you know, I saw this advertisement. I saw this in the, you know, men's golf magazine. Um, what, what is, how do you think that that affects our ability to, to both be, uh, uh, medical educators and also providers at the same time? Uh, it certainly costs us time. And since time is one of the most valuable things we have, uh, it's bad. It also gives patients a false sense of security that they, that, well, this is a medical advertisement, so it must be really true. I think it's horrible. And I actually... I wrote an editorial for USA Today maybe 10 years ago about what was so bad about direct-to-consumer advertising. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think I, I still believe read that one. I, I still believe it's it's hard. Okay. I mean, there are people who want who want to take a drug and they don't even have a disease that has anything to do with that drug. But after you take that drug, you can go dancing. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's <sure>. right. <laughs> or go walk your dog. <laughs> Yeah. I remember that one too. Anyways, uh, or lie in two bathtubs. <laughs> that's right. There's an, there's an interesting uh, advertisement that I that I remember about uh, Viagra, where the guy uh, drops the blue pill into the car, and the car turns into a muscle car. Because <laughs> obviously that happens when you take what? Viagra. <laughs> Are you sure that wasn't a dream, Stuart? <laughs> no, no. We works, we can huh? actually link that ad. Okay, it's pretty funny. All right. Well, we probably should. Well, <laughs> or not. Okay, fine. It was an Italian ad. All right, Paul. We'll, we'll check it out and we'll decide afterwards if we're going to link it or not. Doctor said to our 
I wanted to, we haven't, we haven't talked about pharyngitis at all yet. I, I, if you have some time, I'd like to ask you about that, but if not, I understand. And I think, you know, this has been tremendously helpful, your perspective on medical education. And if you've had fun, we could even bring you back at a future date. We've had other guests that have repeated multiple shows. So it's up to you, sir. Well, well, I'm certainly happy to come back, but a chance to talk about pharyngitis. How could I, how could I say no? This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles. Does anyone actually read the show notes? I read the I show notes. I hope so. A... You do. Along with links to any articles, books, <laughs> websites, or apps mentioned on the show at... The... What apps do you want to mention today? Thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. That's not an app. That's not an app. Uh, I think we... Do you want to mention an app? Uh, we, we talked about up to date. That has an app, doesn't it? That's... That's weak. Can- um, uh, I think he mentioned USA Today. They have an app. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes, and please, please, please leave us a review. Uh, I think Stewart is one of our only reviewers, which is kind of pathetic. Five. Five <laughs> reviews. <laughs> Including Dr. Watto's mom. Uh, no, that's not true. And the three uh, she stars doesn't know how to use iTunes. <laughs> Uh, please leave us a review. This helps others discover the show, and uh, then we we can in turn be be uh, encouraged and make more shows so that you can continue to listen and enjoy. And as uh, as we all know, we want to encourage Doctor Watto. Yes, I have very low self esteem and need encouragement because he doesn't know what Lemire syndrome is. <laughs> you can contact us directly if you want by emailing us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com or you can uh, leave a message on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google Plus or on Twitter at The Curbsiders. And if you're interested you can also contact Dr. Watto on christianmingle.com <laughs> uh, It's actually J-Date but that's fine. Until next time I've been Matthew Watto here with <laughs> Oh sweet mercy somebody. this is Paul Williams <laughs> killing me <laughs> I'm still Tony Sideri what up, G? <laughs> I, I, th- I think that was Stuart. Uh, thanks for listening. 